3: When it comes to the COVID-19 modelling, it can all be a little bit confusing out there. You
2: have likely heard the phrase flatten the curve used when talking about reducing the number of coronavirus cases.
4: The horizontal line is the key one. That is whether health systems have the capacity to cope with the numbers of infections.
5: The COVID-19 pandemic has dominated every part of life since the beginning of the year. Some countries have done better than others at holding back the disease. But everyone has used the same tool to guide their response. Mathematics. I'm Alok Jha, a science correspondent here at The Economist. Maths and I go a long way back. A very long time ago, I was a physicist. Mathematics was the language of the worlds that I used to explore. Today's episode of Babbage from Economist Radio looks at how mathematics can be used to tackle some of life's most pressing problems. From predicting pandemics and guiding health policy, spotting bias in politics. I'll also speak to physicist Graham Farmalow about the way mathematics reveals the true nature of the very building blocks of the universe.
4: If you're the sort of person who has very broad interests I think mathematics is something for you. I think that's often forgotten. Like people think of mathematics as a very narrow subject.
5: That's David Sumter, a professor of applied mathematics at Uppsala University in Sweden. He's also a data scientist for a football club in Stockholm. In his forthcoming book, The Ten Equations That Rule The World and How You Can Use Them Too, David lays out how a small set of mathematical formulae can help everyone make better decisions about their
4: lives. If you learn some basic mathematical skills, if, if, well, if you learn the 10 equations, you can go around applying these things to all different types of problems and getting involved in, in lots of interesting projects. And that's how I sort of ended up working, actually work directly with players inside a football club now, which is just an incredible thing for somebody who can't kick a ball to end up doing. But um, that's the sort of possibilities you have as a mathematician.
5: Okay, so give me an example. The one that interested me was, uh, how do I get rich?
4: That's actually why I started with the book, because I'm the type of applied mathematician who loves to apply things. So as I've mentioned, I work with a football club, but I've also been interested in how gamblers work and how they make money. The first equation in the book is called the betting equation. And the idea is you want to find biases in the odds. I think a lot of people, when they get into gambling, they think, oh, I know this team's going to win. I really think this team's going to win. And it's not about that at all. What it's about is finding where the odds are in your favour. So the first thing to do is you plot the odds. You can compare this to the betting equation and you can see where you have an edge. And that's what professional gamblers do. They don't think about if they're going to win any particular match. They don't even watch the football matches they bet on or watch the horse races. They look for biases in the odds where all of the rest of us have made a mistake and they can win.
5: These equations that you talk about in the book, where have they actually come from? I mean, essentially they're, if I understand correctly, they're formulas for statistics and probability in some sense.
4: They actually come from the last sort of 250 years of mathematical development. And in the book, I outline my theory actually about how there's this kind of a secret society living amongst us. And these secret society, they publish openly how you solve this, how you win money betting, for example, how you can have confidence in your decisions And to give you an example, the algorithm now that YouTube use in order to decide what video to show you next, they increase the amount of people watching YouTube video or the time watching YouTube video by 20 times. And this made an incredible amount of money for YouTube. And it was basically three guys applying a minimization mathematical algorithm. So they were just doing differentiation, something you learn in, in upper secondary school, They were just doing differentiation to find a minimum, and then they could solve this problem and they could get us all addicted to YouTube. So this society is kind of living amongst us, solving these problems and making a lot of money along the way.
5: Okay, so we've got a situation where mathematics is used in many facets of life, from gambling to YouTube algorithms to economic models. What is it about mathematics that allows us to access and manipulate the world in this way?
4: I think the main thing is that it simplifies problems. There's just no way of getting round that if you can use this, you can sort of get shortcuts to answering questions. You can get edges in anything. And probably science is the, is the one that it's most useful for. So I don't think mathematics is fundamental in science, in the sense that, that science is written in the language of mathematics. But I do think it's fundamental as a tool if you didn't have mathematics it would be like not being able to write things actually. It wouldn't be it would be not being able to write a text or not being able to take videos of things. It's like an essential tool to understanding science.
5: Mathematics won't just help make you richer or more successful. It also has a key influence on the policy that shapes our lives. Mathematics drives the computer models for example that scientists have been using to understand how COVID-19 is spreading. And how different interventions, such as lockdowns and social distancing, might slow that spread down.
3: What you can use mathematics for is to describe the processes that are driving the epidemiology.
5: Crystal Donnelly is an epidemiologist. She works at the University of Oxford and Imperial College London.
3: So in the case of infectious disease, that's people coming into contact with each other. So you have some people who are infectious, and they come into contact with some people who are susceptible, and then you can have transmission. So what are the ways that you can reduce that? And we could show this by equations, what sort of reduction you'd get, where well, you can vaccinate the susceptible people so that they're immune and they never even got the disease. Or you can reduce contacts, and that's what we've been forced to do in this setting with COVID-19, is reduce the rate at which the infectious people can come into contact with the susceptible people. The calculations
5: in these models are playing a huge role in decisions by governments on how to implement, monitor and eventually ease the drastic lockdowns across the world. Here's a member of the American government's coronavirus task force, Dr. Deborah Burks.
3: I just want to thank
1: the five or six international and domestic modelers who helped us tremendously. It was their models that created the ability to see
3: what these mitigations could do, how steeply they could depress the curve. But
5: how do these models work? Crystal Donnelly again.
3: Epidemiological modeling in the sense of transmission modeling, so that's Sometimes those are called dynamical models because you're writing down equations to describe the dynamics, the processes that happen underneath that that's what's often referred to now when people are talking about modeling. And that allows you to answer quantitatively what might happen. Now, that's still what might happen based on a set of assumptions. But what I really like about that sort of modeling is that you can write them down. And by writing them down, you allow yourself not just to help think through the process and make sure that you've done it logically, but it allows other people to see you're working.
5: So you talk about building these models with assumptions what kind of assumptions might you have which leads me on to well how accurate can these models actually be
3: they have assumptions about how we mix for example so the simplest model is a random mixing model where you assume that whatever population you're modeling people are equally likely to come into contact with each other any two people now that's clearly not going to be the case even in a household you have a, a household of size five, you don't randomly mix with those five people because you know some of them will be adults, some will be kids. So even on that scale, it's not absolutely true. And it's certainly not the case that even in a village or a small city that people randomly encounter each other. You will have places that you tend to go and you will see a lot of the same people even when we don't count work, where of course most people see the same group of colleagues a lot of the time. It will always be the case that there's more complexity then can be included in any one dynamical model. But that doesn't mean that models can't be useful. And that's where we have to focus. The question isn't, are they absolutely right in the sense of, have they described every single bit of the process that's going on? But have they explained the key processes, the ones that are driving most of the behavior, so that we can understand what's happened so far and make useful predictions on what might happen under certain conditions, and those can inform decisions. They won't say, these are the individuals who are going to be infected, but they may do a good job of predicting on average how many people might get infected.
5: Within a model, each of these variables you're talking about is represented mathematically as part of an equation. Is that right? What's actually the computation that's going on within the models?
3: So, We talk about in the simple case an SIR model. So we divide people into three types. S is for susceptible, I is for infected and infectious, and R is for recovered. And so everybody in a population can be divided into one of those three types. And then we can write down equations for how the numbers of susceptibles, infected, and recovered changes over time. Now, not only does that often assume that those individuals are randomly mixing in whatever scale we're talking about but also that every one of those susceptible people is equally susceptible and every one of those infectious people is equally infectious that's not going to be absolutely true there will be variation we're all different but it's trying to get the average behavior right and understand enough of the variability to give you something useful out at the end
5: you've worked on many infectious disease outbreaks SARS Ebola to name a few do each of these have different models or can you start using the same models with different tweaks as you go along?
3: Oh, there are some things that are fundamental when you look at a directly transmitted disease, for example. So a respiratory disease goes directly from person to person. If you're looking at Zika, uh, that's different because it goes from person to mosquito to person. And so then you're in a, a very different regime completely and as we've gone on over the years we've made tools available one of them for example is called epiestim and that's for epidemiological estimation and that uses a case data so that's the number of cases or the number of deaths observed per day and uses that data to estimate this reproduction number over time now that can be used in lots of different settings and we've used it in several different diseases But for a lot of the models, the particular questions and the particular aspects of transmission will be such that even if we have starting blocks, that we need to adapt and tune them to the particular situation.
5: Mathematics is not only useful for setting policy, but because it's an objective tool, it can also be useful for settling partisan debates. In America, scientists are using maths to help with what has become a divisive political issue, gerrymandering. This is the practice of manipulating the boundaries around congressional districts in such a way as to create unfair advantages for one political side.
2: You have so many data analytics about who the people are, where they are, how they're likely to vote, whether they're likely to vote, that you can draw designer districts to get an outcome you might prefer.
5: Moon Duchin is a mathematician from Tufts University in Boston, Massachusetts. Her work involves using mathematical models to identify areas where gerrymandering might have taken place.
2: So sometimes people say that Democrats or people of color pack themselves into cities. And because they're so dense in the cities, they tend to to be concentrated in a few districts with very high proportions. And since we have first-past-the-post voting in each of these districts, it's really to your disadvantage to have extremely high percentages. If what you need is 50% plus one vote and what you have is 90%, well, you could think about that as as vote wasting. And what you can see is how the clustering of various kinds of demographic groups or party preferences, how does that clustering lead districts to divide up the population when you're not trying to extract extra advantage? So something that my group does and that several other teams of mathematicians have started to do to great effect, I think, is map sampling. So I'm going to now get an algorithm to draw not 10, not 100, but maybe thousands or millions of maps at random just according to the stated rules. And by construction, those algorithms are just taking into account what they've been told to take into account. That's how computers work, for better and worse. And then we can see if all the summary statistics that you can observe from districts Are they huge outliers among a comparator batch of maps that were made without seeking advantage?
5: Moon hopes that this map sampling can lead to something a bit more reasonable.
2: I'm working pretty hard with different collaborators to take some of these ideas from the math space into the policy space. But what might that look like? Maybe you have a state and it has a certain suite of rules and criteria that are stated. What you might imagine is that the line drawers propose a map An analyst compares it to neutral draws that use the same rules and says, you know, you're doing a better job upholding these criteria than those. And that's the thing, when you're doing a complicated problem like this, typically there will be trade-offs. If you want to get better at not splitting counties, maybe you'll get a little worse at population balance and so on. With an eye to that, what uh, modelers sometimes call Pareto frontier, that is sort of what are the maps that do well on some measures and that aren't dominated by other maps that are better in all the measures. I envision actually the potential for collaboration between quantitative analysts and and the line drawers that can iterate towards better, fairer maps.
5: Why does any of this matter?
2: So you can have states, and we do, where the vote between the major parties is about half and half, but there's dominance by one party in the seats, and that definitely Peaks people's intuitions of unfairness. It feels wrong. Right? It feels wrong. And one consequence of that is reduced trust in the system, maybe decreased likelihood to vote, decreased engagement, more cynicism. So sometimes that disproportion that you observe will be the result of gerrymandering, no question. One thing that I hope for these tools is that they can restore faith in the system by showing you, by measuring. The consequences of political geography in order to show you what's a expected reasonable outcome that just has to do with communities and where they lie and what, on the other hand, is agenda driven line drawing. So I think, you know, in a lot of cases, you might find that the effects of self-interested line drawing aren't as great as you thought. And in other cases, like some of the cases I've been involved with, you find that they're just as great as you thought, and that even though the playing field may be tilted one way or the other, the line drawing goes even farther than that. So I think being able to pull those apart, that's a big advantage of the math modeling.
5: Coming up after the break, how maths can help us see the truth not only about our world, but about the entire universe. Welcome back to Babbage. Mathematics plays an important role in understanding and shaping everyday life. For science, though, the connections go even deeper.
1: It was Isaac Newton who gave us the idea that physics, as we now call it, is about setting out laws written in mathematical terms that make predictions, you check them against experiment, and if they don't work, you have to go back to the drawing board. And pretty well everyone knows that that's the way physicists work.
5: Graham Farmelo is a physicist and author. In his most recent book, The Universe Speaks in Numbers, Graham explores how mathematics has helped physicists to rethink key ideas such as gravity, space, and even time.
1: Einstein was one of the people that started this and he wrote near the end of his life that the miracle he declared to his friends was that we can understand the universe because it is fundamentally ordered and it's that order that enables us to understand it through mathematical patterns.
5: Einstein was working at the start of the 20th century. In the past 100 years, though, the love affair between physics and mathematics has only become stronger.
1: What's really new, I think is that we're in a very unusual situation at the frontiers of physics because there's very little exciting new data coming through, say from the Large Hadron Collider, about the goings-on inside atoms. But theorists are having to do their work despite that. And what it's turning out is that physicists by looking at their theories, are driven towards exactly the same territory as pure mathematicians.
5: Let's go back to Einstein for a moment. He obviously used mathematics to do most of his work because he didn't do any experiments. So what did mathematics allow him to discover just using a paper and a
1: pencil? OK, well, Einstein is a great case. When he was in his 20s and he, had it, he did that fantastic work on relativity where he gave us a new understanding of space and time, he really did believe and was quite aggressive about it that physicists only need old... Fashion mathematics that they did back in the geometry uh, and yeah yes, yeah, yeah. stuff that you learn in your basic classes and anything more than that is an indulgence as he, he a pure luxury that's the word he used and he believed that until 1912 and it was then he was developing his new theory of gravity and he found he couldn't do that without mathematics that was in effect unknown to him and Gauss and Riemann and people like this over at Göttingen not having a first thought about gravity had set out the perfect tools for Einstein to import into his theory of gravity. Right? These are two mathematicians, just for uh, right. uh, Well, actually, they did both, actually. But yes, they were mainly mathematicians. And that's what convinced Einstein that advanced mathematics was something that he and other physicists needed.
5: And so the idea is then Einstein comes up with there is that you need advanced mathematics that perhaps aren't necessarily related to physics ideas, mm. but then kind of inform and discover new physics, essentially. Yeah, that's and right. then it sort of flowers, really, isn't, doesn't it, after the 1920s. To take us through those sorts of heady years of multiple Nobel Prize winning mathematicians wow. and scientists. Well, how long have you got? Give, us five, mean... <laughs> give it a hundred words, if you can. All right. Well, so, yeah, let we
1: just say, Einstein, uh, he invents arguably his great piece of work in the 20th century, one of the greatest things, which was that new theory of gravity based on that new mathematics. Shortly after that came the most revolutionary development in science, the whole of science in the 20th century which was quantum mechanics, the theory of motion on atomic scale turned out to be, if you like, a complete break, or so it seemed, from the theory of motion that Newton had done hundreds of years before. Again, those pioneers found that they had to use new mathematics that had only been out in some cases, you know, five or ten years, and this mathematics was what you needed to look at matter on the microscopic scale. Now, the real puzzle, and I might say it's still there, As we speak, this puzzle is still here, you have two great theories. You have the classical theory of relativity, of gravity, and you have quantum mechanics gravity has got its own mathematics and quantum mechanics is actually rather different. The mathematics looks very different and also it's got probabilities in it, which Einstein abominated in a sense that he really believed that you should be able to predict those probabilities, not that there's randomness in nature, which quantum mechanics says there is. Now the big challenge for physics, and as I said it's endured right to this day, it's still a problem, is how to jam those theories together to get something that will enable us to understand all of nature at a general level. Clearly the The mathematization, if I can say,
5: of physics has achieved great things and will continue to do so. But is mathematics always real? When a mathematician comes up with ideas for Mm -hmm. some new bit of mathematics, is it always the case that that's going to be something physical?
1: Most of the really top-notch pure mathematicians don't give a tinker's cuss about physics. Right. They do it because they are working, in the words of G.H. Hardy, on patterns of ideas that interest them just for the sake of it. Right. They are not thinking, what has this got to do with nature? The key thing is we're now finding that the two frontiers are overlapping. Even mathematicians who deal with stuff that looks to be completely irrelevant to anything to do with the real world is actually relevant to the real world. And by the same token, physicists, when they look at your corks and your gluons inside every atom in your body and everywhere else, right, you look at those subjects deeply enough and you're taken into the world of mathematics.
5: That crossover has pushed scientists further, opening up new avenues of discovery.
1: The biggest milch cow, so to speak, of this field has been string theory. String theory basically uh, says that instead of thinking of things like electrons and photons or what have you as point particles, rather there is an elementary string and that these fundamental particles are excitations of that so-called string, very, very short pieces of string in space-time. That subject is consistent with quantum mechanics and relativity. That's the first thing to say. And the reason why people love that theory and have so much faith in it, to quote the great Edward Witten, who is the doyen of that field, that subject showed why gravity must exist. Your jaw should drop when you hear that. Gravity isn't just brought in, right? It must exist as a result of relativity and quantum mechanics, right? Absolutely amazing thing. Now, if you look at that theory, which... It has to be said, it's very difficult to test unless you're going at very, very high energies. But in the exploration of its consequences, we find ourselves taken to all sorts of things to do with combinations of algebra and geometry, things to do with the curvature of fields, many, many subjects that mathematicians are looking at for their own reasons, but the physicists need in order to discuss how those strings could make up the real world.
5: So the mathematical physics is just way ahead of the experiment mental abilities right now and my only conversations with people doing these things they yeah. sometimes say that it might take hundreds of years to develop the technology to test the things that they're mm-hmm. coming up with now because in mathematics you don't need anything more than a paper and a pencil and yeah. maybe some software yeah. to sort of answer these things but what do you think it see as the biggest promise that mathematics has for physics we've talked about how it can really shoot forward and make you think about different things and mm-hmm. see the universe differently um what kinds of promises is there in the future for this then
1: Physics is going to have to get used to Long periods when we won't be teeming with experimental results because they're getting more and more expensive to produce from the telescopes, from the expensive colliders. There'll be these gaps we have to fill. Now, because I think mathematics is so fecund a field, it will enable us to do creative work while there are those gaps. That's what I suggest in the uh, epilogue to my book. So I think mathematics is proving its worth and its value, even when we haven't got the experimental input.
5: Mathematics not only lets us see the future of physics or glimpse the unseen parts of our universe. As we've heard, it describes the hidden patterns all around us and gives us the ability to control and predict our world. That's all for this episode of Babbage. Our thanks go to David Sumter, Crystal Donnelly, Moon Duchin and Graham Farmelow. For more great stories about science and technology, subscribe to The Economist. Go to economist.com slash radio offer to get 12 issues for $12 or £12. I'm Alok Jha and in London this is The Economist.